namo tassa bhagavato alto samma sambudassa namo tassa bhagavato alto samma sambudassa namo tassa bhagavato alto samma sambudassa for sake of all beings wisdom compassion and non-cling awareness i will awaken speedily the sake of all sentient beings one of the reasons for uh, one of the reasons i do i don't know about other people one of the reasons i say uh, uh, usually every time i sit down to meditate or, or every dharma class but especially every time to meditate namotassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa very very ancient from the buddhist time it is not uh, just a prayer to invoke uh, the buddha to remember buddha nature that's that's sufficient actually just to invoke buddha nature this is what it's about but it, it it has three components which are actually worth recalling and remembering. It's not just about your liberation, but it's a declaration of totality. So it's namotasa, to name, to honor, uh, that which is uh, namotasa bahagavato, which is the thus gone, fully going, fully completely going, going completely into liberation. Arahato means fully purified. That means one's own being is fully purified of emotional uh, disturbances. And then sama sam buddho, or samu sambuddhasa, is sama, complete, and then a double completion. So it's wake, it's a complete, complete awakeness. So as a declaration of completely going, fully purified, complete, complete awakeness, to me, is a profound declaration of nothing, of, of saying, this is what you're doing. Right? As it moves more to Mahayana, uh, Vajrayana, then it's a declaration of for all beings. But the very fact that you're saying Samma Sambuddhasa implies totality for all. It, it could not. If you understand it, it could not be for yourself. Buddhas don't emerge for themselves; they emerge for other beings. So this is this is why. Just in case you're wondering why every morning, Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Uh, well, I, I've been doing it for, I guess, almost 40 years now. Uh, at least once a day. Uh, just to let you know why, to declare what we're actually on about. This is important. Always, when you set out for a journey, instead of kind of a mushy mind going, well, different styles, you know, mushy minds float through life. It's okay, whatever. But if you actually build intention, this is what would like to accomplish. You're setting in motion what? Punya kama, kama, karma. Otherwise, you don't. So without intention, you don't get anywhere. You find yourself arrive places mysteriously and confused or giving a story as to why one arrives somewhere, but to aim where you want to go and keep refining, of course. This is the key, okay? You keep refining. Is what could be more glorious than Namotasa, Bhagavato, Arahato, Samasambudasa? You could also say, uh, I honor, I give honor, and I name uh, the uh, the movement towards full purification and complete Buddhahood. You could also say that. That's worthy. In, in English? 
You could, yeah, it's actually good because if you don't do it in English, if you don't know what it means in English, then you're saying a prayer, right? And a prayers are good, but if you don't know what they mean, where's the intention? They, they're good for vibration. Watch. Right? But they're not necessarily leading you anywhere. So as the Dalai Lama recently pointed out in Dharamsala, we were there for teaching, three days of teaching, as he said, is this about right quote, Jamie? I think so. It's not enough to just to click your rosaries. Mm. Meanwhile, there's about 300,000, there's about 3,000 people clicking their rosaries, right? You know, it's not enough to click your rosaries if you don't understand emptiness. It's not Buddha Dharma. It might be prayers, but it's not Buddha Dharma. So I'm speaking from one of my teachers that unless you understand emptiness experientially and intellectually, it's not Buddha Dharma. Let's start out before. Today is about the firebrand, the whirling firebrand, which is used as one of the examples of illusion. And it's all about duration, the illusoriness, the illusory nature of time and duration. I'm going to give you some meditative uh, uh, exercises, if you wish, to uh, use. It's all around us. It's very important. It also leads to the experience of impermanence, and of course, anatta, which is the empty nature, the uh, non-abiding nature, no, non-permanent nature of entities. So it's a very, it's another fast method by which you can come to experience the illusory nature of f- uh, fixation. Any questions though, before we start? Yes. When you were talking about the monologues last time, is that the same as the builder? Yes. I, mean, I have, I have found you builder and you build no more. That's right. It's the monologues, but it's also the monologues that aren't seen. So we have layer after layer of monologues because we have monologues that we carry that we don't actually have words for. And I, I have a term for these that I made up years ago because of a uh, of, of meditative practice, and I call them whales and sharks. So once you pass through the stage of the verbal monologues, well, first of all, there's the verbal chatter monologues. Then there is the the chatter of the golf commentator. You know, you all have ever watched golf on television? You know the golf commentator? Everything's slowed down, but it's like, now Tiger Woods is setting up for a very important putt on the 16th hole. Look at the body posture. Look at the placement of the feet. Do you hear that? You ever, ever heard that? Yeah. Well, have you ever experienced, ever experienced the golf commentator? Not when the chatter goes down, and now there's calm. In comes the golf commentator, the sports commentator, which is, look at this. It's good meditation. Shut up. Look at this. Pretty good posture. Mm, maybe not right. Be quiet. Good calm. Settled mind. Shut up. <laughs> Leave me alone. So there's the golf commentator. Get, so get ready for the golf commentator, the sports commentator, for anywhere for a few days to weeks. Yeah? 
And then, once that goes, there's an experience of no thoughts. Except there's the whales and the sharks. And the reason is, is this is the experience I've had sometimes being on a coral reef, especially in Indonesia, where the drop-off is two, 3,000 feet, like this, vertical, right into a canyon. And you're up at the surface here in 30 feet or 60 feet. But you get this feeling that there's other creatures out there. You turn around and there's, there's no other fish, but except on the, you know, on the reef face. But you can feel life about you. And every once in a while, there's a little flicker of a shark coming in and out. They're not saying anything, but you can feel your heart beat or uh, a large entity moving just in the shadows. And once got brushed by a sunfish in murky water in the Galapagos, this thing just went like this, and I got bumped in shallow water. And then it came again, and I saw it. And it was a about this big, this this flat, these flat sunfish. They're actually they're actually um, they move so slowly that they're considered plankton, giant plankton, because plankton by definition float. And a sunfish really has fins like <laughs> it's like this thin, it's like this big, you know. Ever seen a sunfish? No. I like this, you know. And they're really big, but you know, if you're in, in uh, murky water and it comes, it's this big entity coming in and going out. It doesn't want to, it doesn't want to bite you or anything. It just bumps into you because it's so murky. So then you get into whales and sharks, which are these these big giant things that have emotional connotation, but there's no monologue. There's just a feeling, thinking. Do you know? This is the deeper level. And that needs to be washed through. And then the mind can really settle, pristinely settle. But unless you... So, so a lot of what we do during the day, what we call monologue, is in fact a component of it, is the whales and sharks that we don't see. We don't even know we're carrying until we keep removing layer after layer after layer. We see it. Or our friends tell us. But we just can't see it. Or we're even told we have it, and we simply can't see it. It's hidden. It's been it's been hidden. Okay. By the way, they're not all bad monologues. Some of the monologues are actually good. Why do we put in new monologues? Namotasa Bhagavato Arhato Samasambudasa. New monologue. Raise it up, elevate it, move it somewhere else, move it somewhere else. This is why I believe I really like the path of Tantra as a path of elevating all phenomena towards liberation. Whether you drink coffee, you elevate it. Whether you drink tea, you elevate it. Whether you go for a walk, you elevate it. Do you see? Everything you do, you elevate towards liberation. You elevate towards liberation. All common activities, eating for liberation. Social dis- discourse, for, for liberation. If you sit around and talk about people, for liberation. If you gossip about people, then make it for liberation. Everything, everything, everything. If you're going to make love, it should be for liberation. Yeah? Liberation, liberation, liberation. Something, something, something to do with liberation. It's very important. So that's how you change the monologues. That's why we do a lot of mantras. Because we want to change all the maps, the monologues, from uh, gray or heading downwards (laughs) to bright, and heading upwards. 
right? And how you do that? You have to change the monologues. It's an antidote, and eventually, uh, see the word mantra. People think of mantra because it's such a commonly used word as sound, as something you say for religious or meditative purposes, right? But actually, the word mantra in the Vajrayana tradition means pristine awareness, the practice of pristine awareness. You don't actually have to say a mantra to be practicing mantra yoga. So one of the meanings of the name Vajrayana and Tantra is also called, traditionally, secret mantrayana. Why? Because it's the practice of the secret practice of the pristine awareness because it's hidden from view. So all mantra yoga is to reveal pristine awareness. They say, well, pristine awareness is a visual or not sound. No, no, no. It's all sound because pristine awareness is the nature of vibration in its natural mode. Do you see? The nature of clear, free cognition in its natural mode is the sound. You see? Pure sound. Pure, awakened sound. In, in a half a second, there is the opportunity to say, what? Right now. From the spaciousness of the mind, in a half a second, there is a flick like this where you could go, or glory. Just like that, right? That's all it takes. Just confusion or brightness. In the same way that when you're roasting coffee, you might only have 30 or 20 seconds or 10 seconds for an observation between it goes, between it gets bright, sweet, aromatic, right? Coffee? or burnt, dark, crisp, unpleasant from the acidity going from acid to sour. Correct? Yeah. Just a few seconds and you've blown it. You get distracted, it's finished. That's all. That's all it is. Cool. How much do we, time do we have for emotional reactions? Mm-hmm. Only about a third of a second. That's about it. To change, and how do you? And if you keep trying to control, then you're a control artist, which is the accusation of a number of therapists about Buddhism. It's just about suppression of emotions. No, it's not. It's about purifying emotions, and then you don't have to suppress anything. Why? Because what what you do comes out well. Did you see the difference? That's what you want to. It's purification, not suppression. If you're suppressing, watch out. But. For many people, the path of suppression is not bad because that's maybe where you need to start. Right? I won't be in a bad mood today. I will suppress it. I'll put on a smile today even though I feel miserable. That actually is better than than playing a miserable being. So in that sense, suppression is worthwhile until you can purify to where you don't need to suppress it. Anyways, any others? Because I'd like to move on to. <laughs> There's so much to. There's so much in Dharma to uh, to bring up and again and again and again. Any others? Yes. I was uh, comparing the city of Gandharvas. Uh, it's something that is built up for a group, um, and I see the similarities with languages or dialects or 
So a group of people that live more in isolation, create their own dialect, build up their own way of thinking. Since I perceive that thinking is not separated from language. That's right. So I was wondering, I mean, we could use mantra for purification of language, but could be also like a, an exploration of language in order to purify our thinking. Yes. On a deeper way. Yes, 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 absolutely. Each language carries with it, as you know, Spanish, Portuguese, German, uh, English, they, uh, Chinese have with it a whole way of thinking, ways of seeing the world, the way the, what the words actually mean and carry in modern and older connotations shape how you experience the world, which can get very confusing if you're in a multi-ethic uh, what is it? Multicultural relationship? Very confusing. Something said, it's misunderstood, and a difficulty ensues for anywhere between hours and days, if not months. Why? Simply the language and the view carried by the language until the misunderstanding is cleared up. So a worldview is carried along by the language and the culture which the person emerges from, which are invisible to that being. So that's why I say language and the use of words is so important. How about the word today, grab, which has now become entered into common usage. What did the word grab mean 20, 30 years ago? What was the feel of the word, I wish to grab your plate? Can I grab your coffee cup? Can I grab your arm? Now, people use the word grab all the time. I lost the battle. I tried. I tried to turn it away from the word grab to take, to hold, to remove. What does the word grab mean in the English language? It's aggressive. It's aggressive. It's highly aggressive. It's now being used by all kinds of people in common usage. Even when you tell them what it means, they can't, it can't stop now. It's entered into the lexicon, or the idiom, more of an idiom, of common usage now to take, to pick up, to hold any kind of object. And yet, not long ago, it was actually an aggressive term. Okay? So if I go to some place and I use the word, may I grab your arm, that's an aggressive act. If you say, don't aggress me, somebody maybe in their 20s might go, I'm not aggressing you. I'm grabbing your arm. Why would you grab my arm? So many times at a restaurant, I've said, when the person says, may I grab your plate? I go, no, you can't grab my plate. You could pick it up, but you can't grab it. Please don't grab it. They look at you like, what? <laughs> what? They've grown in a society of grabbing. So what does the word grab imply as a shark and a whale? Do you see why I'm so specific about words? When you use the word grab, it's still in consciousness in the culture as what? an aggressive act. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Why use that word? Why does a person want to use that word? This is very important. So purification of speech and understanding the words you use. Uh, my experience with Namjur Rinpoche for the first years as attendant was every single word was caught. It wasn't easy. Every single word was caught. There was times when every word that came, just about every other word that came out was, just a sec. 
Listen to that. Listen to that. Purification of speech. Draconian methods of quick, 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 quick work. Why? Because we use words, but we don't know the feeling behind the word. We use words and we don't even know what they mean. Sloppy with words, sloppy with speech, carrying meaning that actually is aggressive, greedy, jealous, disorganized, all kinds of meanings with that word. Why? Why use that word? Why, did, why that word right now? Why did Natalie leave that chopper die laying on the table there? You see? You see? Why? 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 That's minor. Just using that as a story. But you see? Why? Why that? Why that? This morning I was looking at the shoes out the do- outside the door, looking at all the different kinds of shoe styles. Why would someone pick those shoes and not those shoes? Why do they wear those shoes? Why that clothing? Why that speech right now? So yes, City of Gandhara's speech, building a cultural milieu, a cultural world, very much tied into language. And yet if you're in the culture, you don't see it. Do not see it. Do not see it at all. Even the inflection of a word, right? The inflection of how words used could turn someone off and you don't even know why they haven't talked to you for a week. For instance, I know from, from, from the Arctic, the word akalowit, which is where I live for eight years, if you pronounce the word akalowit wrong, akalowit means place of fish, but if you, if you pronounce it incorrectly, I believe it means up the bum. Well, it's a little bit more crude than that. But just the just slight change of inflection means place of fish or basically what it means. So could we think without language? Yes. Yes, we think without language. But if we don't have a word for a specific state of mind, how can we think about it? Uh, the thinking is a different kind of thinking. There's deep processing that doesn't come out in language. Which so so today, you know, is a very popular thing about the right and left hemisphere. Some of this work is being, some of these ideas are being messed up about early research of split brain patients, which simply isn't quite true. So, for instance, we normally today, because it's being pushed by certain people with agendas, or even unconscious agendas, that if you're not thinking then that is a right hemisphere process because the right hemisphere doesn't think. That's not true. That's not actually how a brain works and is organized. If you have a split brain patient, yes, there's less thinking. But there's differences in different people. So we, ne- we tend to say, well, if we don't think, then we have a mind that has no concepts. Not true. Not true at all. Not even true. Take dreams is a dream with symbolic language, thinking or not thinking. Even when you're not using words, you are concept- the consciousness is conceptualizing, problem-solving, without any words at all. These leave traces. And some people would say dreams don't produce any wapaka, any resultants. I'm not so sure about that. Depends how conscious you are. Depends whether you act on it in the morning or whether there's emotional affect in the morning. Okay. So so the position I will take on that from experience uh, is that, yes, there's a lot of 
conceptual activity that has nothing to do with language. So the settling of the mind into a non-conceptual rating experience is not just words. It must go deeper than that. It's a physiological settling. And even a physiological settling of symbols and images and all kinds of other material that's being processed, it must deeply settle. So the usual example is an oceanic settling of completely calm ocean with no turbulence, down deep. Whereas before that experience, it's like the Amaz- if you've ever been on the Amazon River, before it empties out, it's really big, or the, uh, no, it's moving too fast, I was going to say the Mackenzie River, but the Amazon River, slow and steady, calm, there's this movement. This is called um, river flow samadhi. Like a giant river, there's not a ripple, but it's moving like a current. See? But when that river empties out into the ocean, it's a very different experience. There's not a, there's not, it's just like oceanic, giant stillness of, of being. So. What you're saying is like the mind looking at itself is beyond words. The mind not even looking at itself, the, that's, that's one stage. The mind dwell, indwelling in the nature of awareness without there being a looker and a looked. That's, that's settling. But yet there's a, a vivid awareness that records and is present, but doesn't have a dialogue and doesn't separate out the meditator and the object of it. So there's no mind, there's no awareness of mind, and yet it's not dead, it's bright, vividly alive, and then after a while, one can go back and forth to use language, to describe, back and forth into the experience of no meditator, no object, and language and description. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Because it's happening right now. So even when one speaks, the nature of the mind doesn't change. Only the waves change. The ocean never changes, essentially. Only the waves change. But to get there, you actually have to have the, o- the waves settle. So would you say that the richer the language, the better the discrimination? But uh, eventually, just, that's just a tool of compassion? Yes. As it moves, as is the mind that moves into the relative needs to use the language in order to a being that is not a being that, that does not have very good sophisticated language can still liberate very very well but for teaching purposes and liberative purposes and compassion a rich vocabulary a rich understanding of language is extremely compassionate why do we this is partly where you started I think to some degree Nuno why do we use Sanskrit for mantras why don't we use English Partly that's to do with the range of Sanskrit sounds is a larger range conforming with the range of sounds of the human mind and the human body. Does that make sense? Whereas English is short. It's short. Doesn't doesn't have enough. Does not have enough range. Doesn't have the mm, the, the nuño. Doesn't have the n in there. We need a whole range of sounds. Could we use Spanish? It's missing some too. And also by tradition, and it's true. 
uh, those sounds that have been used and, and used for liberation carry thousands of years of power mm. and transmission with them. Whereas an English word uh, is can be liberative and can be used, but also but doesn't necessarily have the transmission power, the empowerment power. But saying Gregorian chant in a monastery or a cathedral from a tradition of, what, 800 years of Gregorian chanting? Or 600 years? I'm not sure. Something like that. 800? 800. 800 t- carries a tremendous power of transmission and deep liberative abilities. You see? So language is very important. If you look at Sanskrit, um, I think in the 1910, I, I might be a bit some a German group, Monier Williams published the English Sanskrit Dictionary, Sanskrit English Dictionary is about this thick in uh, 1882. Okay. Then the German, some German group of Sanskrit scholars decided to actually do the whole thing. Volume uh, A as far as I know from my Sanskrit teachers, was something like this volume and this volume. It was, took tw- 20 years or 15 years to produce A. Short A and long A. Words starting with that in Sanskrit. Do you have any idea how big the, how big the dictionary is? How big the dictionary would be? Yeah, start, start, huge. Sophistication of language. So English often has a lack of words to describe things, we want to use Sanskrit or Tibetan words because of its richness of meditative spiritual description, which can be lacking in the English vocabulary. That's all. But our, but our, my, my, Namjoon uh, Rinpoche too, uh, and other people in the world, uh, his goal is to bring and blend words into the English language uh, more and more. Uh, that are used for spiritual specific descriptions of things, technical, so that we can use we can use those words. But sometimes we need to use a Sanskrit word because there isn't an English word. There simply is not an English word that can encapsulate that depth of meaning. Five, ten different meanings. And we don't even have an English word to do that. So for instance we say about meditation, meditative absorption. We have absor- absorption. If we use the word jhana or J H A N A the richness of that word to describe those states. We don't have anything like that in English. Nothing. So that's where we need a technical language, and that technical language then opens the doors for people. That's why language is so important. If you don't have the words, even though a being with very little vocabulary can liberate profoundly and deeply, but for compassion and teaching purposes, this is why the yogi scholar in India and in Tibet is elevated to a very high place. Why? Because the ability to be compassionate for a wide range of beings, to shape beings and undo the knots of beings through language, which is vibration, becomes very powerful by having a very wide range of avenues to do that, of discourse. So in that sense, the Buddha was was referred to as a being who could teach farmers, who could teach princes and princesses and plumbers and consorts and 
all kinds of beings. Why? Because his use of language and his understanding of beings was so vast. Not just teaching at a monastic college or not being able only to teach people maybe who um, can have some meditative experience but not be able to teach insight. Or be able to teach insight because you've been trained in insight in Vipassana, let's say one form of Vipassana, but when you listen to someone's life uh, story and what they're going through, you you couldn't enter into a social discourse because you don't know anything about how to unravel, untangle beings' lives through their life. So the only thing you know is this way. Or someone you talk to a scientist, the only thing they can talk about is science. But when it comes to emotional stuff or building a house or how you get a job, or relationships. Well, as one famous, uh, no, uh, as one famous, uh, one of the most famous physicists, uh, Stephen Hawking, said recently when he was interviewed, uh, he's not, he's getting near the end where he can actually speak, you know. It's a cheek, cheek muscle movement to speak. He's got a neurological degenerative disease. So, 70 years old, he's lived way beyond his, his days, and they're getting to the point where they're not sure how they're going to keep engineering speech form because it's a little muscle movement. It gets translated. Uh, but when he was interviewed recently, he, and he wasn't well enough to go to the conference on his, on his, his behalf, as honor, uh, he was asked what's the biggest mystery that he contemplates at times. And Women. He said women. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that, pardon the pun, tongue-in-cheek? <laughs> Don't know. But he, when he was asked, like, what's the biggest mystery here? Women. I'll just leave it there for today. <laughs> How's that for a place to... Ah, that's it. That's it for today. So would you please just contemplate as a major <laughs> contemplation, women? <laughs> Any others? It's lovely. These are good, these are good questions. Does that, that help make sense? Of it? Yeah. You have to consider that language goes way, way deeper than language. Language is sounding. Language is vibration. Everything that comes off you is language. Refining language is a cultured being, but not how big your vocabulary is. Do you understand? Not how clever you are, but how intellectually bright. And that could be a peasant in the field. Met people that have very low levels of education, but are bright to the point, swift with it, and can catch any little discrepancy. And I, I I know people... Who, are, who must maybe probably have an IQ of 170, 180, and amazing scientists, but they're poor emotional life. Confused, confused emotional life, physical life, confused. But get them in a lab, get them in a, that environment, they sparkle, they absolutely sparkle. But this is, this is around language. Language at all levels. Speech, speech at all levels. So it's profound, it's profound, it's profound. Change the speech, you change the entire physiology of the organism. Not just words, but everything that manifests then is a manifestation of inner physiology. How the thyroid's doing, how the adrenals are doing, how the heart is doing, you know? How's your heart today? Just ask, how's your uh, five pounds of bacteria in your gut today? 
<laughs> yeah, really important. Because, you know, the vagus nerve comes up from the, the stomach, travels right into the brain. It's connected. The brain and the gut are completely connected and connected by toxins and chemicals and everything else. So how you feel in your belly is how you feel, how you manifest the world. And that's not you. That's five pounds of something like I don't know how many trillion organisms all in their own world and they couldn't care less about you. They couldn't care less about what you're thinking about. Except they're shaping. And if you think in a certain way, they're going to shape you in another way, guaranteed. Guaranteed. What you eat, have you heard this expression? What you eat is how you are. That's that's vibration. What you consume, what you put into you, also shapes you. Is it? But that's not completely liberation. Because you also need to be free in the mind from physical, uh, temporal activity. That's that's a. We've ta- I've talked about that before. Any other any other things? Okay. Let's go. Let's let's dive into the illusion of the fire wheel, the firebrand. The optical illusion, but it's 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 normally known as the um, the fire wheel, the firebrand. Now, one variety of illusion included among the twelve is called the circle of fire, or the firebrand, the whirling firebrand. And have all of you seen a whirling firebrand? You know what I'm talking about. Have you ever seen demonstrations, especially at night, of fire fire artists? What are they usually called? Hmm? Poe. Yeah, different names in different countries, but fantastic work that they do. Have you seen this with the firebrand, where it's rolled around fast enough? What does it appear to consciousness as? A circle, a circle of light. Is it? No. This can be observed when a burning object such as a torch or incense stick is whirled around in the dark. By the way, the the sparklers I was going to show you today, they were. Duds. Do we have any here? Oh, well, we could keep lighting them, but thank you, Laurel. No, from last year. They have a short lifetime. Their interval is one year. We're going to talk a lot about intervals today. Oh, that's all right. I think you all have the idea. I like torches. Let's go. Do you see it? No. (laughs) The various distinct positions it occupies in quick succession seem to merge into one and we observe a single glowing ring, correct? Mm -hmm. So now how do we apply this? Why would they bring this up as one of the 12 examples of a whirling firebrand? Just go, well, so what? We know that there's optical illusions. But if we go into this, we're going to enter into a world of make-believe 
and all about human perception. It's worth doing. And I'm going to give you some some um, uh, places to look today where you might actually, uh, hopefully today, may slow your cognition down. Once you know you can do it, it's easier. If you, it might take you months and months and months to stumble on these things. Now, in the, dis- the Mahayana discourse of the descent to Lanka, usually referred to as Sri Lanka, may not have been. This is a teaching by the Buddha. He says the Bodhisattva uh, Mahamati. Quote, Mahamati, since the ignorant and the simple-minded, that's classic for Mahayana texts, that language. You won't see that in Theravada texts. This... The foolish, well, yeah, the foolish man, but then this, the ignorant and the simple-minded, not knowing that the world is seen is nothing other than our own mind. It's very, very Mahayana. Cling to the diversity of external objects. Cling to the notions of being and not being. Oneness and otherness. Isn't that interesting, eh? Clinging to oneness. How many people say, oh, it's all one? Wrong. Clinging. Clinging. They cling to oneness and otherness, bothness and not-bothness, existence and non-existence, eternity and not-eternity, as being characterized by self-nature, which rises from discrimination based on habit energy, called karmic energy, habit energy, monologues. That's, that's also what's referred in the text as habit energy, pranic habit energy of the winds moving, which create monologues, but not necessarily words. This beautiful statement, as being characterized by self-nature, which rises, arises, from discrimination, that is, um, this and that, not, not wisdom discrimination, this and that, this and that, based on habit energy, they are addicted to false ideas, addicted to false ideas, addicted to notions. Mahamati, the world is like a wheel of fire, which is no real, no real wheel, but which is imagined to be such by the ignorant, but not by the wise. So, what does they mean by that? The world is continuous. The world is made of this and that, being and non-being, wise and not wise. Enlightened and not enlightened. You see? It's all blended into one firebrand of activity. Yeah? And is that the case? No, the wise knows that the firebrand is an illusion of what? A stick, a single point of light going around at a certain speed to create the optical illusion of continuity. So let's get into this. Because this is how do you undo the continuity? Slow it down to see what? Intervals. Intervals, moments. This is the classic method. Not so much the method that's used, well, it can be used in Mahamudra Zogchen teachings, but this is the classic methods used in the um, methods of what is now today called Burmese and Thai Vipassana, but comes all the way from the Abhidhamma tradition. All based on the view that all of matter and all of mind arise and pass away in moments, discrete moments. Hmm? Do you believe that? We need to go. Do you believe that things 
have momentary existences, have duration. The wheel of fire is no real wheel because it's a combination of two distinct illusions. The first is called the motion blur. This is easiest to explain by reference to a camera. The exposure time selected for something in motion determines whether it's a blur or whether it's steady and how much is blurred. Correct? So how we frame an experience determines how we experience it. Very very important. How we how we experience something in motion or some, a continuity depends on how we frame the experience. So the shutter speed of a camera, the exposure, length of exposure, determines what we get to see and how we see it. That would be like someone blinking their eyes continuously. And they would see little snapshots. And if they had a neurological disease, of which I suspect there probably is, I suspect there's a neurological disease. Is there such a thing of the eyes blinking? Maybe. There's, there's almost everything in neurological diseases. But, but there probably is one. You would see, if you got used to it, you, if you were born that way, you would say the whole world is broken up into snapshots. And every uh, second or two, which you'll see is completely phony, is completely imaginary. But every two seconds, there's another snapshot of the world. And that's how they would experience the world, correct? If you were born that way. They wouldn't see continuity. And if your ears were, if your ears were doing that from some neurological disease, what would you experience? Hearing? Gone. Hearing? Gone. Hearing, gone. How about touch? No continuity of touch. Ah. Ah. Do you follow? That's actually how we experience the world. Turns out. But we stitch it together. We stitch it together. So that's the motion blur effect. So if we have a ball bouncing at night, like a fluorescent ball bouncing at night, and we use a camera, it could be, if, it's, if it, the camera is fast enough, it may be 3,000 of a second, we'll see a ball here, a ball here. If we take different frames, a ball here, a ball here, a ball here, and so on. If we shoot it at 1 60th a second, what do we see? Right. We see a bouncing ball as a continuous motion. That's called motion blur. One way of avoiding motion blur is by using a stroboscope stroboscopic effect, that is you shine light very fast at the object and then the picture will show individual steps. And if it's fast enough, then you get really clear duration, very clear imaging. So there's an individual ball here, an individual ball here, an individual ball here, right? When in fact, what is there? One ball. Correct? One ball. The motion blur effect also arises for our eyes. Of course, these do not work like a camera by shooting a picture during a fixed exposure time. What happens is that the light hitting our retinas produces a set of impulses that is then passed on to the brain along the optic nerve. 
so just to tell you, anywhere between 100 to 300 to 500 milliseconds. So the time it takes, and on average about 300 milliseconds, but as long as, uh, no, that's not true, as long as half a second for imp information to go from the retina to the frontal, the uh, cortex, to have, to have recognition of the sensation. Isn't that cool? Half a second. About two to three hundred milliseconds for smell. How about this? I'm gonna blur I'm gonna kinda of blur this chapter in together as I feel like it, but Nicolina, if you touch Andrea's toe that's sticking out there, Andrea, I want you to measure how long it takes for the sensation on the toe to, to go up and become conscious. Should we try that? It happened before? Yeah. Yes. Good. Try it again. Now see if you can get it right at the moment. Yeah. How long did it take for the impulse to travel from the foot to the brain and be translated into a conscious perception? I don't know because I had my eyes closed. I mean, it took a while until the How long? Came. How long? Uh, not the words, just the recognition. Try it again. Try it again. Should I look or not? You can look. Try. Right away. Right away. Yeah. Try, try it now by touching with your eyes closed. <laughs> How fast does it take? Look at you so confused you won't even know. <laughs> like that, eh? Yeah. But to, for the nerve, the impulse to travel to your brain... Uh, takes actually how many meters? Are you about two meters tall? Just under two meters? <laughs> no, like one seven. One one seven. So that would be it travels. It can be traveling at one two hundred meters per second. Actually, from the toe, I think it's something like five seconds, five five meters per second. It's cool, eh? So it actually, takes time. Now we need to find out how fast we can actually register sensory experiences. Oh. So would that be why if you reach for something hot, you touch it, you don't know it's hot right away? And you're, oh. Or you're distracted. Yeah. <laughs> or dull. But actually there is a time lag. There's a big time lag. But, there, but when you know it's hot, just like Andrea did, what do you do when you think it's hot? And why is it so fast when you touch it? Do you know it's hot? Because the brain anticipates the heat and changes time and the heat is registered in the present. Isn't this cool? But you're not actually experiencing the heat. You're experiencing the anticipatory heat. But if you don't know and you're shocked and you go like this, Ah, have you had that? Yes. Whoa. Why? Because it takes half a second or longer, especially with it traveling like this, it can take half a second or longer before it's actually coming to conscious recognition. So most of the time what we do is we don't perceive things, we anticipate things. And therefore, it feels like it's real time. 
But look at the delay. Yaha! Could be a full second. Where's the present? Where's the present? Okay, carry on. The, con the continuous stream of information sent from the retina is interpreted by the brain in discrete packages. Like that. There's a package of sneeze. That was a sneeze package. Oh, well, it's true, actually, because we actually have a map for recognizing a sneeze. If you go like this, and there's no map for that, it doesn't have a sneeze. It's not a sneeze. So we actually have to get a sneeze map. So there's a package of information, and it becomes sneeze information. Sneeze. Sounds like Monty Python. Sneeze information. I used to see the, Ponty, the Monty Python skit. I often have these, you know. Been tainted by Monty Python and SCTV, you know, like a Dharma talk, and everybody's now sneezing. Like, let's get the interval of the sneeze. And everybody's now sneezing, and then people walk by, um, like hunters from, uh, pygmy hunters from Africa, all sneezing. That would be a Monty Python skit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have packages. Since sufficient information has to be collected first to allow for interpretation, if there isn't sufficient information. It can't be interpreted. And if there isn't sufficient information, it can't be interpreted by the so-called conscious brain. But it may be interpreted by the depth. And you still act on it. But you don't know you're acting on it. Like a sneeze that you can barely hear. The time required to put together such a package is called the integration time. So it's not just a matter of receiving information. There has to be integration. And there are neurological disturbances that don't allow integration to happen. All kinds of problems. For instance, there is a neurological disease by a bacterial infection, secretera, secretera poisoning from coral reef bacteria. If you eat a tropical fish, like a by grouper, but um, red snapper, something like that. You could you could get secretera, and then you don't know if it's cold or hot. All kinds of neurological things and misinterpretations and so on. So the way in which the package gets there has to actually come through a whole bunch of gates and interpretations before it comes to conscious recognition, and it may not even come out anywhere near what it is. But there's an integration time. Each of these packages can be regarded as an image. Well, it doesn't matter which sense it is. It comes through as a package. And these packages can be measured in laboratories. You can actually measure today how long it takes for the firing of, of nerve cells in the retina or, or receptors and how long it takes for there to be conscious recognition. There's fantastic experiments on this. Or part, partly conscious recognition. So you can now take an object and blur it in such a way in, so you, the person can actually get part of it so they actually get to experience something but they never saw the dot. Kind of cool. Or you can take the dot away before there's conscious recognition. The person's going, ah, uh, I think it's a square. I don't, it's really, and you can start the time to the millisecond level where the square comes, the map for square comes up to conscious recognition to to extraordinarily fine detail. 
If an object moves very fast between the different integrations forming such an images, it will appear blurred. If it's moving too fast, be, be, between the ability for our brains to process that information, that's too slow. So I'm going to give you a project. Next time the helicopter goes by today, try it. Can you hear the intervals of sound of the of the chopper rotation of the blades? Try it. You'll see how fast your brain can process information. Helicopters are good for that. Can you actually hear the distinct rotations of each blade? The temporal, the time resolution of the human eye is relatively high. This is going to, this is going to find this extraordinary. I hope you do. Because we're going to use this for meditation. This is why I like these texts, you see. I like neurology. I like science because I use them for contemplative purposes. They're the modern equivalent of the old meditation manuals. This is how I use them today. A bright flickering light can be perceived as flickering if it flashes up to 100 times per second. The light there. Ow! <laughs> so what did I do there? I anticipate the temperature, right? You see? And I actually was conscious of doing that. Is before you passed to me, I went, I, I didn't say anything. I just felt that flicker of safe or not safe, or wasn't even the dialogue. But there was an anticipation whether by all the kinds of things I know about this light, all the kinds of data, whether that would be actually safe to touch here or hold here. You see how fast it is? The question is, can you slow it down so you become aware of that? You want to slow it way down until you become aware of all these little chunks of decision-making and see how life is built. I have found you, O builder. You shall build no more. Okay? Can you, can you actually pick up the flickerings? Yes. Can everybody do that? Maybe Barry not. That's all right. Barry, you, you know what a, light, uh, a, a, a candle looks like when it's flickering? Yeah. yeah. Can you turn off a light bulb with an electrical switch fast enough before it becomes a blur? No, they're not usually designed that way. Click, 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 so guess what? A hundred times a second. This means that we are able to distinguish visual events as short as 10 milliseconds. That's one thousandth of a second. Isn't that something? Our eyes can discern, can resolve movements and intervals of one one thousandth of a second and actually discriminate them, but not normally. One thousandth of a second, or one uh, ten milliseconds. Is that neat? But not normally. That's that's probably the fastest measured in a laboratory, because people do that. They want to know how fast could it possibly be. What's the normal speed? By the eye. Hmm? By the eye. The ears are different. The touch is different. Smell is different. So on. <coughs> Hmm. On the whole, however, we must we are most likely to perceive a flicker if the light goes on and off between 10 and 30 times per second. 
That's the average speed by which we process information to visual recognition anywhere between 100 and 300 milliseconds. It turns out that's not really true. It's more between 300 and I just, I usually look up recent data, just I always like to see the recent research. Uh, about 300 to 500 milliseconds, so up to half a second. Isn't that me? It's really slow. Do all of you know what a second's like? How long is a second? This is neat. Who's, who's here under 20? Anybody? No. Who here is in their 30s to 40s? Okay. How long is a second? Is that about right? Short or long? Uh, just, no, just, uh, just for the the 30-year-olds, because I know you're we're, we're somewhere around 90. So, but for the 30-year-olds, what was the what was the interval? Was it faster than a second or slower than a second? Let me do it again. Well, it's going to change. Do it again. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> it's too slow. Were you saying it's too slow for a second? No, I'm I'm going on what Terry said. I'd like to have it again. Okay. But you see, I, I'm not going to be able to reproduce the same right. interval. That's all right. Is that one second? One second point two or 1.8? I'd be like one three quarter. One and three quarter, what would you say? Just a bit over a second. Just a bit over a second? Like two seconds. Two seconds. Okay. Anybody in their 40s? Oh, you're in your 40s. Oh, okay. <laughs> Anybody in their 50s? Okay, listen. So I'm, I'm actually going for a second. Trying to, you know. Just a little over a second. Anybody in their 70s? 70s? Just almost? Almost. But more over a second? Under a second? So it actually changes for the age. Intervals. Changes for the intervals. But isn't that amazing? So if we say a second, now let's go to half a second. Hang on. This is fun. Let's go to half a second now. What would, you, would, you say, would you say that was about a second? Some of you are always saying over a second. <laughs> but we'd actually have to time it. You know, I'll, just, I'll, do, I'll do what I can. I'm, I have a timer if you want. Uh, this, this, I can do this because it's got a, actually a little. And this is a very, you know how expensive this was. It's a very sophisticated chronometer. This one. Can you really say how much that was? No, it's almost beyond uh, <laughs> measure. Should the cost be of this. Should, should be, be modest. Yeah. yeah. You bought it with the gems in India. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, at the ferry terminal at the uh, Vancouver ferry terminal, and it's actually one of my longest-lasting watches. It was twelve ninety-nine. But it's been one of the last, longest-lasting watches I've ever had. It's still going well. So it's actually a very accurate watch. So I'll, go, I'll do a second. Actually, the flick of the finger is too long. And no, it's not too long for a second. It's just by the time it starts. Let's just see if I can do it. Okay, watch. <laughs>
Mine. So I was way over a second. Probably closer to a second, three quarters to, to, to almost almost two seconds. Okay, how about a half a second now? Yeah, I see, but I'm, I'm, I'm according to this, a very advanced chronometer. Very advanced. Actually, it is. It actually holds very good time, this watch. It's quite, quite good. Uh, unless it doesn't. <laughs> but, but right now, it is. Okay. <laughs> How about just half a second? Listen. I'm just getting the beats, actually, in the body. That's how I'm doing it. The vibration through the watch. Do you believe that the processing of the uh, visual system is actually that slow? So what's going on? It's measured in a lab that slow. What's going on? This is why this optical illusion is very important. Isn't that weird? Do you all get that? That the visual system actually processes information to conscious recognition in an interval like this. Let's do half a second. snap of fingers. Longer than that. Isn't that slow? Does that feel? Now, does that feel very long in terms of how fast you could react to something or, mm-hmm. yeah? But that's been measured for the last two decades mm-hmm. over and over and over again, laboratory experiments. Yes? Yes, but not conscious recognition. To conscious recognition, we go, mm-hmm. sound. You actually recognize sound consciously, not recognize sound by jumping back. You see? That's a little bit faster. But where you can actually recognize it as a sound. You don't say sound, you just recognize a sound. But your body may be getting in the way a little faster. But may not. Yes? What accounts for the, the fact that what, the night that we were looking into someone else's eyes to see the movement, when I looked into someone else's eyes, I saw it like in slow motion. But when I looked in the mirror, I saw just a blur in my own. You saw a blur. I saw like a, a movement, but it was really, really fast. Hmm. But yet when I looked at the same movement in someone else's eyes, it was like slow motion almost. That's interesting because normally, uh, normally when you look in a mirror, the the eyes are designed not to see your own uh, eye movements. How many people saw the, their own eye movements? Interesting. Yeah, I, I've done it too. I can actually move my eye. I can actually set my eyes in such a way I can actually see the slight movements of the eyes. I just train them to do that. If I know it's there, I will then work at it until eventually I can go, there it is. I, I always find in these neurology or these books where they do something in a laboratory and they say, this can't be done or the human being can't see this. That gives me reason <laughs> to try it. And it might take me, for instance, one time, you know the proprioceptive system is an autonomic system. So one time, many, many years ago, I went into retreat and I'd been studying a lot of physiology and actually took two, two physiology textbooks into retreat with me, a three-month retreat. And I got in my mind is, I'm going to see if I can actually mentally find the map that holds the proprioceptive system centers together in the brain and knock it out. You're not, you're not supposed to be able to do it consciously. 
it took up, think about a month and a half or a month and a quarter. And one, one time, just doing, just mentally wanting to do it. And every once in a while, where would that be? And I, I was doing other meditations. So it wasn't and it happened. Just sitting there like this, and on a bed like this. And the body went out completely and became a pile of mush on the floor, like a jelly. No ability to stand, walk, move, couldn't find limbs, nothing. Got knocked right out. So I, I, do, I do a lot of this, which is I take, take, take something I read and go, okay, let's go for it. And I found as for, for it, these are all the things, by the way, that come up in insight meditation too. So it's a wonderful manual, wonderful manuals of insight. Do, do you feel how weird that is though? To go, there's a half a second, and yet, does it feel like that in the visual system? Faster. But it may not be true. Okay. okay, on the whole, however, we are most likely to perceive a flicker if the light goes on and off between 10 and 30 times per second. That's been up to about between 10 and uh, 50 times per second, so up to a half a second. For a TV set to be perceived as flicker-free, it has to refresh 72 times per second. Interesting, has anybody ever seen the flicker in some of the old te- the old computer monitors? The flicker and also the refresh rate? You actually see the band of light going up? I trained my eye to see that too. So it meant now that whenever I looked at a computer monitor, not the flat screens, I would see this band going up like this. I say to people, can you see the band? They go, no. So now I'm seeing a band on the computer screen because I trained my mind to be able to catch the, the band, which is now disconcerting because every time you look at the computer screen, the refresh rate. The lower the light level, the bigger the blur. The higher the intensity of light, the usually the, the better the ability to discriminate features. So if you're in low light levels, not only does the the delay happen, takes longer, but your resolution is lower and also there's a time distortion. Nevertheless, even if we assume a very low uh, time resolution threshold uh, when observing the circle of fire in the dark, the man whirling the torch would have to achieve at least 10 revolutions per second. 10 revolutions per second. per second to let us see a closed circle of fire faster than the rotor of a helicopter in flight. You know, faster than a, the rotor of a helicopter in flight to be able to see a continuous continuous arc. So the people that do that, right, it's really fast. Does anybody, does anybody do that? Has anybody done that here? No? Yeah? It's very fast. Can you do that? Roll it around so it's actually a continuous... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really something, isn't it? Yeah, it's very fast. In fact, the motion blur effect is enhanced by a positive after image, which is the second kind of illusion required for bringing about the wheel of fire. When you look steadily at a bright light, such as a naked light bulb, for some time, and look away, you will often see a bright form shaped like the light bulb, right? An after image? Okay, yeah. 
because the retina is actually still holding that data. It takes time for the retina to fade, for the information in the retina, it's to do with biochemistry, for it to actually, the chemical change to fade away. The explanation for this is that the retinal cells continue to transmit a signal even though they receive no further stimulation. They're still passing on information even though they're not getting any particular information. You therefore continue to see a bright light even though there is none present anymore. You've all had this experience? After image effects, yes. The opposite phenomena, called a negative afterimage, can occur as well and usually succeeds the positive afterimage after a couple of seconds. What's that? The image fades out and now you get a black outline. That's the negative afterimage. So positive, uh, so uh, object or image, positive after effect, negative after effect. How long is that? Just enough time now to make a continuous motion. Isn't that cool? Not only is it blurred at one tenth of a second, right? Not only is it blurred, but the the light coming into the retinal cells keeps firing even though it's not happening anymore, which produces the afterimage effect. As that fades out and the firebrand comes back around, you now have a negative afterimage of the object still there, and then the image comes up again. It's fast enough to create a continuous motion. Okay. No, no. We have the image, the data comes in, it's registered, and then we have a positive afterimage, which stays around, so now it's still there, and then as it comes around, there is a negative afterimage, which is still an object, even though it's dark, it's still an object of the of the flicker, of the, of the light, and then you're instantly, right back, instantly, within... four or five milliseconds back into the retina being able to gather in a fresh uh, amount of data of that light. In my experience, the after image, the first after image is a complementary color of the image. Uh, that's, that, would, that would depend on the light of the fire or uh, looking at, for instance, a red circle that's different. This is the firebrand. That's a different kind of optical illusion. But the after image will be naturally, if the, if the fire is orange, we will see it like a blue. And uh, then, then it comes back as an orange. Because it's so fast. Yeah. And remember what, what Andrea did there is she did anticipation. What I did with the light is I did anticipation. So actually, what are you seeing? The brain is anticipating what the color should be. So even though it's a dark after image, it doesn't matter. The, the brain knows what it's supposed to see, so it puts that in. Making sense? Everybody making sense? Most of what we see, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to, I'm going to help you dismantle more and more and more that what you normally see, because it's moving, your being, your physiology is moving too fast, it doesn't see the discrepancies, the breakdown of the matrix. It simply doesn't. doesn't and it doesn't want to. This is it. Ignorance. Ouija? doesn't want to see the discrepancies. It doesn't want to see the illusion. It thinks it can be happy by not seeing the illusion. 
you'll be much happier by seeing the illusion. As a matter of fact, it's extremely blissful. Monologues. Just monologues. There's no fear. Just monologues create fear. A child doesn't have that fear. Most children don't have that fear. If you raise a child to meditate and do insight, they're fine. As a matter of fact, they're telling you all the time what's going on. I mean, if you talk to young children sometimes, they give you the most profound meditative experiences because it's happening to them. They can't integrate it. They don't necessarily know what it is. But they're actually cognitive system. The, the human uh, visual system is not actually mature until 13 years old. And it requires being trained to see how we see. This has taken a lot of research to prove this, but this has taken 30 years of research. And only in the last two years is it now certain it's 12 to 13 years old is when the visual system becomes like an adult. And it requires to be trained that way. If you're not trained that way, you're going to have all kinds of odd experiences that your parents says, it's not like that, Johnny. You know, it's always Johnny, right? I wouldn't want to be called Johnny because imagine. It's always used as experience. Or, or Juan. Juan. Juan, it's it's just not like that, kid. Don't don't think it's like that. And of course, then you get trained into seeing the world. But this is a subtle thing because it takes it takes 10, 12, 13 years to build up a world model of experience, hearing, seeing, touch, taste, smell. And then it's seamlessly integrated, and that's just the way the world is. Did you see? But, but if you have, did anybody have children? Yeah, some of you have had children. Have they ever come out with amazing things, insightful? You go, where did that come from? And, oh my God, that's strange. Yes? Have you? Yeah. Why? They're seeing the world differently. They're experiencing, they're hearing. And they're in a different world of perception, but they must be trained into seeing how the culture sees. Yes? So their imaginary friends could be real. They could be, but you have to prove it. Could be. They may actually be seeing beings that uh, you can't see. Why? Because their mind is fresh and they're quite open to it. Of course. The motion blur effect can be explained by some object moving so much during the integration of the image from a retinas that it only leaves a blurred image. But now imagine something moving much slower, such as a man going past the window. Here's your next meditation. You can write this down today. You cannot use women. They're different. Only men going back and forth across a window. That's a joke. Uh, you know that. Oh, okay. You, 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 you got it, right? Okay. But what I'd like you to do now is I want you to try different kinds of things going before you. We can do it visually, we can do it auditorily, right? But let's try visual for a while, for most of you. Barry, you can try auditory uh, or visual. But let's, let me give you an example. If you look out onto Lake Attilan right now, this is, a good, this is perfect this morning. If you look at the water and you would say, well, there's water, yes? Mm-hmm. Continuous movement of water. But now I want you to try to look at the waves as individual wave patterns. And tell me what you see. It's a different experience. 
the eye is able to discern individual waves rising and falling, of which there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands happening. See? But what we often do, we see it as a continuous whole. So here's something that's going to be weird for you. Try this. Someone walking by or a bird going by the window. You have to set these up. You just have to have the right thing come along. And see if it's a continuous experience or if it's broken. Now we're going to make it more difficult for you, okay? Is the person walking by the window, is the bird flying by the window, the leaf coming down, falling down, is it continuous or is it broken up with intervals? Go look. Go look carefully. Has the sun ever been scrolled? Because it too must have a frequency. <coughs> it, 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 it does. And that, that's done with, with satellites where they can actually slow it down so they can see um, millisecond movements of the sun. The sun has a life of its own, yes. It has, it has actually periods and periodicity and right now we're in one of the most active sunspot cycles, and we're going through a lot of um, space weather right now, and it'll start to... If, if the past thousands of years is any indication, likely it's going to start changing after this year. But uh, yeah, it has a life, and people are measuring its, its uh, um, periods from thousands of a second right through to years and decades and hundreds of years. So here's one for you. I'd like you to study today duration. Intervals and duration. Intervals and duration. (coughs) Intervals and duration. How are you going to do that? You have to set up the kinds of experiments, meditative experiments to do that. The method that's used classically in uh, Burmese and Thai Vipassana, especially from the Mahasi Saito tradition, is to break down the walking. Has anybody done that? And some of you, you've already done that, yes? Into, into over a period of six days, or a week or two weeks, of seeing that the foot, normally we, we say stepping, yes, we made a step, but the step can be broken down in intervals, yes? And what usually happens? Well, if we break it down into just one, there is a right foot stepping, yes? And if we break it down further, what has has to happen? We have to lift the foot to make a step, yes? If we break it down any further, we we can see that not only is there a lifting of a foot and a stepping, but there's actually a pause and a movement of the foot across space, yes? And you can see that there is a lifting of the foot. The heel comes up. There's a lifting. And then you might catch that there is a lowering of the foot, and there's an initial moment of touching whenever that is. Okay? These three six distinct stages are used as a way of slowing down the physiology of the organism to start seeing duration, interval, not just in stepping, but in everything. Okay? So if you wish to do that, you have enough days to do this now, once a day, only one a day. So today, start with right foot stepping left foot stepping. No more complicated than that. Stay away from anything else. You'll blow it. You'll ruin it completely. Yes? 
So to if if we use this in everything in terms of sound, like when you're speaking, it's like hearing the beginning of your of the word. Yes. The duration, and then the end of the word, and then to 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 begin would be hearing, 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 hearing. Yeah. What would be the next step? Hearing, pause. The hearing interval the, the intervals. Hearing okay. pause. Yeah. Hearing pause. Yeah. Such as in the bell. Can you hear those? Yeah. All, most most human ears can hear those intervals. That's what you want to do. Everything. And then Everything. somehow you, you can translate like the lifting of the foot into the hearing somehow, like the, the moment that the, the sound arises, I suppose. Yes, you want to catch closer and closer to the moment where there's recognition of sound. Mo- closer and closer to the recognition of the disappearance of sound. Closer to the moment where there's mindfulness that the foot has touched the floor, that the foot is placed on the floor, the foot has been lifted up, do, do you see? But today... Because you must work in stages. If you don't, you'll blur it and you'll ruin it. Okay? Even if you've done it before, it's better to take at least a day. I'd say even two days because you're you're not in a full re- full on retreat. Is for today just right foot stepping and that's it. The left foot it has to drag. <laughs> it's a joke. What? Right foot stepping, left foot stepping. And slow it way down and keep slowing it down. Don't fall over. If you're falling over, it's too slow. But what's comfortable for you to be able to keep the mindfulness on the entire step. Right foot stepping, left foot stepping. You always start with the right foot. There's a reason for that. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Then you stop. And you must know that you've stopped. There's training in mindfulness. But it leads to opening up the intervals and seeing uh, cha- the change of the falling and the clinging to perception as continuity. Okay? Very important. That's the intention. It's one of the intentions. One of them. But it's a, it's a really good way to slow the physiology down. And then it helps to get in there uh, by that walking practice. 17 steps, by the way. 17 paces. That's how it's done. 17 paces, stop. Stop. Slowly turn. 17 paces back. That's done. And always with the right foot lead. Right foot starting. Always. Why is that? Because one day you're going to lose right, left, and you're not going to have a clue what's going to, what's happening. Okay. So you want to be able to come back. That's why. And eventually it will surface. Oh, yes, there's a light, right foot and there's a left foot. Because it's not so much about being fuzzed out. We don't, we don't want fuzzed out minds. We want precise minds. But minds that are open, and you'll start to see there may come a time where you cannot distinguish between right and left, left and right, not goes completely. That map is shattered for a while. It comes back. But we like to do things like this systematically so that when it does, it's easier to come back because you start habitually with right foot. Does it make sense to you? There are, eventually, the reason I'm teaching you this is eventually you're going to see all of your experience is maps. Just one, this map, right? There is a uh, Shalan sneeze. There's now a Nuno map for Nuno coughing. I could tell Nuno's cough from everybody else's cough. That's a map. It's actually now the cells have grown over this period of time and it recognizes if I heard it over there or a tape recording, I go, Nuno's, Nuno's cough. Why? 
the cells have actually grown and now have Nuno cough recognition cells. Will it be there forever? No. Not necessarily. But likely in some seed form that could be reactivated. The, the, the brain is very good with its real estate. If it doesn't get used for a while, it gets taken over. But there's traces enough that, that even if it gets taken over, it can be <coughs> brought again. Yes and no. It depends whether it's gradual or sudden or semi-gradual or semi-gradual semi sudden, <laughs> how it's taught. But there are all, all kinds of exercises in both the Mahamudra Zogchen tradition for seeing impermanence and so on. But the straightforward approach is not really to go that way, is to see the anatta. This is the impermanence teaching. I'm teaching mostly emptiness through impermanence by interval. The other method it relies on anatta is that there's no substantial nature there whatsoever. So you look directly at the mind in its settled nature. And that lets it fall apart. Whereas this is through interval. Because the, also the clinging to interval and the clinging to stor stories in interval is very thick and strong. This would be relating more to the event. You are breaking down the event. Yeah, but, but also objects, objects embedded in events. <coughs> and objects aren't usually separated out from events. Mm -hmm. They're embedded in the event. And eventually you'll be able to see that the object can be separated out. It's like almost two components. Mm -hmm. That there's like this object, but it's in now a temporal event, depending on light and other conditions, which make that object so. Like the man, give me an example, the man or the woman walking in front of you or across the window. The recognition of that has to do with the kind of event speed, and that will translate into the gate the walking gait and the posture of that person, which has to do with recognition of that being. That's the object. But the event has a lot to do with the being. So I'll give me an example. If you've never seen uh, Shalan before, and the first time Shalan gets introduced to you, she walks in, she runs in, bounces on this couch, does a triple somersault, <laughs> lands on her feet, and then flips through underneath the kitchen counter, right? and runs out. That's a very different Shalan than a Shalan who walks into the room and sits down in the chair. It's the object and the event. Gets mixed in. Let's go to So so then so not just walking in front of a window, when you I want you to observe today people walking Continuous or non-continuous? Boat moving across the lake. Continuous, non-continuous. Bird flying. Continuous, non-continuous. Bird flapping wings. Flapping or, or what's it for most people? Don't be so sure. Okay. 
And if you keep doing that, you're going to see a whole different world, I assure you. But you, need, you may need to do it for uh, maybe some of you hours, but probably not uh, days and d- days until those maps that hold the fixity of continuity start to come apart. It's beautiful, really. With the breathing, see the Ab- absolutely, with the breathing. Yeah, it's one method. But I'm, I'm using these uh, com- completion stage methods here. Whereas the breathing is uh, about, um, it is, but it's it's uh, touch, 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 interval of touch, touch, touch. Con- yes, I breathe continuously. No, so that's one way of starting. Yeah, so many different methods. You see, so many different methods. I just hope that one method gets in there. Clouds, clouds continuous, or by interval. <coughs> Trees moving. Continuous or bell? On the last ring, how many rings were there before it faded out? How many? Your nervous system can compute it exactly even if you can't, so it's there. It's already done it. It's one of the classic insight tests for people. How they're doing in Bhavasana is how many rings or how many times the bell chime. And you go catch it like that. 32, 25, 55. And that will show how much you're slowing down, how much the, the clarity of interval is coming up. Oh, it rang a couple, I think. It, it, it had, it had uh, uh, I think, about five or seven reverberations. Yeah, try 35. So this is in the same way that a person can stand in front of a painting of dots and go 8,355. Nervous system computes it. Yeah. I've heard that um, in baseball, uh, batter, the ball is moving at 100 miles an hour, but to the batter, it's 10 miles an hour. What right. is, what's going on? It's all about co- cognitive perception of time. How about tennis? Have you ever seen the measurements on tennis? 186 kilometers, 200 kilometers an hour? Isn't that amazing? I just I was just watching um, some, I think the, the Australian, is a World uh, World Cup? I'm not sure what it is, but, but um, they actually, actually have an IBM clock in the back of of the uh, of one of the courts, it was like 186 kilometers an hour. It's just like wow, and the person's reacting and actually returning a serve. I thought, whoa, that's amazing, eh? So yeah, time slows down. All of it slows down. It just shows you how fast, uh, you know, it gets pushed to one tenth of a second. That's a, they call that extreme, but that's what the person who's playing tennis at the professional level, light or the batter, likely has to do is slow everything down to 10, 20 milliseconds. That's all they've got of reaction. Of course, the batter's trying to get it, get the duration down faster, right? To outsmart the batter. And the batter's going to have to get sharper to be able to perceive the ball moving at that speed. Quite something, isn't it? So when people tell you about, this is how fast we see, this is what we can see. Don't buy any of it. Just try. 
Who says that we, we could only see down to one-tenth of a second? You could train, probably, and get down to maybe two, two milliseconds. Sorry, two... Uh, uh, yeah, two milliseconds. We've, we've, we've watched how well we can see individual cells that we're growing. And then we, look, we can see them. We go, oh, look at that. Culture's really nice, eh? There's a cell, there's a cell, there's a cell. We put it under the microscope and we're measuring. It's only 30 microns. We're not supposed to be able to see down to 30 microns. We can actually, after a while, you get to see individual cells at 30 microns. 30 one-thousandths of a, of a millimeter across. Isn't that amazing? But then you try to thread a needle, you know, throw a thread like this, and go, oh my God, it's like, you know, millimeter and a half. But we've done that, and we've done experiments of just pricking a pin, you know, a pin, and you go, wow, they, they, they refine it. So when somebody says, this is how fast it is, or whatever, um, take it for a given that in 10 years it might be a lot faster. It's like baseball, because they're challenging each other. Nature of sports? In fact, the same problem arises when we watch a film on the cinema screen. A standard movie projector will show 24 different pr- uh, frames per second. Is that right? And what in Europe, it's 30. Yeah. 30, 30 in Europe and 24 in uh, the North American standard. Because each frame has to be pulled down to make room for the next, as the reel goes through the projector, the shutter closes briefly while the frames are changed. Do you, under, do you know? So each frame is a different image, slightly different image, with a little bit of space. They can make it fairly continuous, but the old-fashioned ones had some space, yes? So the shutter, you have to produce a shutter closing so that it looks continuous to you. Otherwise, you'd see these flickers, yes? In fact, the shutter may go down two or three times over the same frames, so you would see 48 or 72 frames per second. That's actually the real speed. Even though either half or two-thirds of these would show the same image. So even though it's the same image, it's creating a shutter speed, so you really get fooled that there's a continuous motion. Generally, the shutter closes for 0.0125 of a second between two different images. It's really fast. You know, it's just, just going like that. And that produces the optical effect in you to feel it's a completely continuous moving image. So adding all the... This is now, now you're going to find this fascinating. Listen to this. I, I love these. And then you can start... Once, you, once you've heard this, if you haven't discovered already, then you can go look for it. Okay? Go look for this. Remember I said about how much of your day is actually blank? How, many, how much of the day... Remember how much of the day is actually you're not seeing? How much of that? Was it four hours? Four hours. Yeah. In an entire day, there's no registering of... There's registering of there's no you registering any information. Okay. Adding these times together implies the rather intriguing fact. The very British, isn't it? Rather intriguing fact. <laughs> I like that. It's very quaint. The rather intriguing fact. The rather quaint idea. That during a regular ninety minute movie, you and the rest of the audience will be sitting in pitch darkness for at least half an hour. Just do the math. So, half an hour of the entire movie, there's actually the being sitting in a dark theater. 
Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. You should go and try to get your money, get some of your money back. Again, this is not what we experience, correct? It's not what we experience. And yet, inexplicably, what we perceive is a smooth moving object projected onto the screen. And that's not what we experience, is it, in a movie? We do not experience a image on a screen. What do we experience in a movie, generally? Like, that's that's actually wrong. What do we actually perceive? Now, that's what the organism perceives. What do we perceive a half a second later? A story image in our mind as we're living in that experience. Mm -hmm. However, while appeal to the persistence of vision may explain why we do not see the dark gaps while watching a movie, it does not really offer any account of how the perception of continuous motion comes about. Once the gaps are eliminated, all we have is a seamless succession of images, each of which might show a man located at different positions along the street. But how does this give rise to the appearance of smooth motion, both in the cinema as well as in real life? You see? So for a person walking along in front of the window, is it individual frames? No. It's not. So how do we get... So it's, it feels continuous, yes? Mm-hmm. But, but is it? The hands are moving this way, yes? And we now know that what happens to the eyes? They're actually flickering and moving, and we're actually getting dropouts in the movement. I want you today, without imagining it, to see if you can, have you done this already? Catch the dropouts in regular, ordinary events. I'm going to show you how to do this. Okay? You're doing it all the time, you just need to know where to look. Okay? Try it now. See if you can, many people can't, but you'll get it if you practice. Just start, start somewhere and flick your eyes to an object. Let's say I'll, 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 go, I'll go to that cabinet there, up on the, above the kitchen counter, and watch, watch what I do. Just watch my eyes. Catch the arising of the image as discontinuous, as, as actually it's, it's arising in space. See if you can do that. Or, or do this, if you can't do that, Move your eyes slowly along and see if you can catch the dropouts and then the arisings of, of an image, arising of, a, of the visual field. Okay. We could be here for hours, but, but try it. Okay. Just Once you know where to look, you'll eventually get it. You have to slow your physiology down. Eventually you'll get it. Then you can get it all the time. It's like watching the refresh rate on a computer screen. You go, oh, there it is. One possibility often discussed is that our minds fill in the gaps between the pictures. But I'm not going to go into all the arguments, but that is not totally the case. Because if there's gaps and we had to fill in all the in-between, our brains would be full, be full of all kinds of images having to fill it in. So it's not really a great argument. The processing power of the human brain would have to be so vast 
to actually make a seamless whole. It doesn't do that. What it does is it makes make-believe based on what you think you're going to see. So what I'd like you to do today, I'm going to continue on, I want to um, uh, finish this section, is I want you to do things like flick lights on and off in your room. Whoever's in your house might be going, oh, would they please stop, but flick lights on and off. Do things where you, you get to experience interval so that more of your day is catching something rising, something falling, like the blue tarp on the pool over here. They will be probably perhaps as a, as a hot tub. It goes up. Normally we just see this, right? We just most people they just see this, right? But if you slow down and your physiology slows down, you see this. You see, and that's partly because of your perception, not necessarily the object. Okay, but normally you see every. Most people see life in a continuous blur. But it's not a blur to them. It feels very real, but it is a blur. You know how they say, well, it just goes on, and tomorrow's like another day, and you know, in the evening this will happen. But if you're living, it's not true. But if you're living in the moment and you slow it way down, you get a very long life. Just like children who are 7, 8, 9, 10, experience one day. Can you remember what that's like? Mm. One day that feels like a year. Have you ever had that? Can you remember back what that's like? A whole day that felt like an exploration of a year. And you come home and you say to your parents, oh, what have you been doing? I've been gone for a year. <laughs> because, because it's so rich. It's so incredibly rich. The being that is not full of richness is either boring or life's going by. Like that. Actually, life goes by like that. That's another insight. It's gone in a flicker. Just gone. Life, lifetime of human being is just like a flicker. It's gone. Finished. All to do with biochemical rhythms, perceptual fields, there's no such thing as time. So to see the that things aren't continuous, there's discrete movements. Now, what do we mean by that? Could you say, well, wait a minute, aren't there discrete movements? But would you say that the candlelight is flickering or continuous? This gets into deep debates in meditative philosophy. Is the flickering light continuous or are there individual movements that rise and fall? When the tarp, the blue tarp, lifts up, is that one movement? Or while it's laying down, is it the same as the old movement? Oh, this is fun. When you when there's a step, when you take a step, is it one step or many little steps? And is one step connected to the next step of the left foot? I want you to look at that. Intervals. Is your life continuous or is it broken up into things that kind of develop, keep developing, and then fall and then are gone? Let me give you an example. And then we'll finish up with atomic theory and show you some some mind-boggling things here. Read to you some mind-boggling things. 
if this being takes a right foot, a right foot step, when the right foot goes down, is it finished? Is that the end of the step? Don't be so sure. Don't shake your head so fast. Is that the end of the right foot step? This is the kind of this is the kind of work I want you to do in walking meditation. Is it finished? Or are you already making a step with the left foot, which is a continuous motion? And why do you have to take a step right away? But if you've made a step, aren't you finished the step? Yes or no? If I raise the hand, is the hand now raised? Is it going to raise infinitely? If it raises infinitely, what's going to happen to the rest of the body? The arm is either going to become detached <laughs> or lift up. So do things have a rising and a finishing? And do they have a falling and a cessation? Or do we create the illusion that there's a continuity where everything blends into everything else? That when there's a step, there must be another step. That one step is followed by another step. When this being sits, is it finished sitting? Or now is there sitting, 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 sitting? Is the sitting going on? Or has that act finished? And now another act begins. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? So when we think, how about the ones that say, you know, you say uh, they're, they're having some emotional problem. You know what that is, yes? So they have an emotional problem, and you say, so how long has it been going on for? Oh, long time. All day? No, actually. Eight hours? Eight hours of the same emotion. No. Well, how long? I don't know. It feels like a long time. Five hours? No. Four hours? No. So the morning you were upset, yes? Yeah. But the afternoon you weren't? Yeah. So you weren't upset all day? Yeah. Okay. Was it four hours or five hours? It's more like four hours. Was it four hours or three hours? Maybe it was more like three hours. Go back and back. And it was only a very short duration. How long did the emotion actually last? Maybe only two or three minutes. But the dialogue about it was what? All day long. Do you see where we need to go with intervals? The more exact we get with intervals, the sharper, the razor-sharp mind comes out and can actually cut through the blur of fantasy. So when it comes to emotions, it comes to mind states, it comes to energy patterns, it sees things very, very differently. So the being that says, you know, I'm not really in a very good state. Oh, you're not in a good state now? That's right. Are you in a good state now? No. Are you in a good state? Oh, yeah. Wait, wait a minute. Yeah, it changed. But you weren't going to change, were you? No, that's right. I was going to be in a bad mood all day long. As a matter of fact, I've been very happy to continue it on for three or four days because that's the way I see life. But that's not the way the physiology is. You see? It's not the way reality, not the way relative reality is. 
So you see this insight method of looking at moments, even though other philosophers and great yogis said, there are no moments. There's no such thing. Don't worry about that. The ability to actually see things in microscopic interval is really important because it breaks through this uh, morass of not seeing. Very important. Okay. So before you jump to all the universe is a continuous open space of mind, mm-hmm. please would you get some refinement? You know, get some refine, get some training. Training is mindfulness. 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 No mindfulness, no breakthroughs. No, as Namaste Rinpoche was often say, no awareness, no liberation. Forget it. No mindfulness, forget awareness, forget liberation. Well, not possible. Buddha said the same thing too, by the way. It's nice though when your personal teacher tells you. If you read a text, you go, oh yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, the Buddha said that. But when your when your teacher, who's living, who's an accomplished being, says that, actually sometimes you listen. It sinks in, you know. It kind of sinks in, you go. Maybe, maybe it's maybe it's true. So I'm trying to tell you, as Westerners, instead of saying this is what you do when you go and you do it for five or six years, as Westerners, you often need to know why. Do you get a feeling of why? Mm-hmm. Because duration and time, and how we see the world is illusory. And to cut through that and get fr- and to really experience freedom, you're going to need to slow the physiology down to catch. Uh, the construction, the constructed, fict- the constructed fiction. How, uh, how about this? I'll tell you a good one. What's it called? Saturn? Saturn rising? Saturn, what's, Saturn, what, return? Saturn return. So what's that year? That's between what? 20, 28 years? How long does it last for? How long does Saturn rising last for? Or Saturn return? How long is it supposed to last for? In a couple of years or something like that. Anybody know? Uh, was it one year, two years, three years? You just watch what I'm going to do here. What? I think it could be a whole life for some people. <laughs> That's what I figure. A whole life for some people. Just Saturn returns over and over and over again. <laughs> Never leaves your orbit. But how about this? Watch what happens to cognition. So a person's in a difficult... They're, they're, they're 28 or 20, 28. Right? And they're having a rough time, big change in their life. And someone says to them, Saturn return happens for two years. Come out of it around 29, 29 and a half. Can you imagine this stuff? I get to hear this stuff. Okay, 29 and a half. <laughs> so you feel you're coming out of it, right? You're going to be coming out of it any day now. Within a month, two months, three months, four months. And someone comes along who knows astrology better, says, you know, well, Saturn return goes usually off until 32, 33. And the person now is doing what? I'm going to be in it for years. How about this one? Do you want to hear this one? Uh, two couples break up, right? One couple is devastated, or both are devastated. One couple is really devastated. And they get together with their friends, and they, and they, and they're, and, and, the friends say, guess what the friends say to them? Well, you know how long it's going to last for, this devastation. No. The girlfriends get together and they say, it's going to take one year. It takes a year to get through it. Not, not 11 months. Not 9 months. Not 10 months. One year it takes to get over the breakup before you start coming out of it. Before you can you know, want a date again. Yeah. I heard it was for every year you were with yeah. <laughs> 
Okay. Okay. And then, and then you, one, yeah. And then you die, and and then you die. It's like you grow, and then you do some things, and you die. So you're saying we believe what we hear. We believe what we hear. I've seen people literally devastated because someone told the news it's going to take you two years to get over this. Just pop, pop psychology, right? Or or Saturn returns. How about this? Saturn returns, as if it's deep science. Saturn returns, and actually, no, you're going to be in this for two or three more years. And they're devastated. Why? Because they believe. Yeah. Oh my God, that's fact. Or the person that's wearing their pajamas. You know, they're wearing pajamas because they're getting ready for bed at eight o'clock because they're told, well, you need you know ten or eleven hours of sleep at a night. They that's what they read. That's what it's on the internet. Therefore, it's true. This is nuts. Tell you, it's nuts. But this is, and, and I get to hear people actually worried, frustrated, depressed, anxious, worn out—all these kinds of things—because they've got a belief system that they have no idea is complete fiction. How long does it take to process visual information? Half a second. How did I frame it? Somewhere between a hundred and a hundred milliseconds and. 500 milliseconds, right? But it could be as much as, or as less as, or as more as. Do you see? Based on current <coughs> understanding. This is, this, is, this is serious. Serious, you can giggle, and sometimes I do, but the pain it keeps people in. This is why we practice the way we do. We need to train because we need to come out of this. When you come out of it, there's no suffering. You giggle. You know, how old are you? I'm about uh, 33. Well, you know, Saturn, Saturn uh, falling or rising or returning um, could happen for another five years. That's nice. <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the words imprinted in space, falling away like little jewel lights vanishing <laughs> into space. That's all that was ever ever happened. Little energy bursts coming out of a. Uh, ligaments and tissues and nerves going through space apparently <laughs> and falling down like little jeweled crystals to vanish into space. Thank you very much. It's about all it's worth. Why the em- well, there's more here. Why the emphasis so much uh, on interval and so on? Let's see what some of the great yogis did in the Buddha's time. In the classic Abhidhamma texts, written orally around the Buddha's time, starting to emerge as written texts about 300, 400 years, 250 years after the Buddha, when they had paper. They actually had leaves and things to start writing. In the Abhidhamma, they had quite precise ideas about the length of fundamental moments. Not only that, precise ideas about the size of atoms. So. I don't know if you know this, but in ancient India, before the Greeks, there was a very precise idea of atoms. Atoms as fundamental fundamental particles. Do you know that? Yeah. Including the size of atoms, which I've measured in terms of literature, and it comes close to a hydrogen atom. Now, let's talk about fundamental moments. In the Abhidhamma, which is the insight, insight philosophical tradition of, of the Buddha Dharma, as taught by the Buddha, 
they specific they specify the length of several phenomena in terms of moments. A finger snap is supposed to take 60 moments. That's insight. So if a teacher of insight says to you, how how many actual moments are in one snap of finger? That's what some yogis have determined as the actual individual physical or mental, that's actually the mental um, moments that are in the duration of a snap of finger. A thought, sorry, that's the physical. A thought is called 90 moments. Now you have to understand what are 90 moments. There are 4,500 moments in a minute. And 3,240,000 in a day moments. Mm. And one moment, therefore, lasts about 13 milliseconds. Isn't this cool? Thought moments, 13 milliseconds. And what did we just say? That the average perceptual time for conscious recognition is how many? 10. They're right on. Isn't that cool? 2,500 years ago. Not only could they measure the size of an atom, because I've done it. I took their literature and I went, and I went to the Harvard University uh, Library and actually looked up the old text and got the original text. I did the math, and lo and behold, they knew the size of an atom. I'm not kidding you, no. Just I went to do it and found out that's true. So they're saying that one mental moment is about 13 milliseconds. And we know that the uh, finest ability for anybody measured at this time for actually responding to a visual stimuli, stimuli at the conscious level is 10 milliseconds, so they're within three milliseconds. It's not bad, eh? That's that's the range of accuracy of anything that's done in cognitive science, anyways. Pretty good meditators, wouldn't you say? So, mental moment being a conscious moment of recognition. Conscious mo- moment of recognition, thought, a thought process, right through, right, right through to conscious recognition, the whole thought process. Those 17 mind moments. Takes ten mills take, takes ten thirteen milliseconds, so that they actually had it down in terms of intervals. Isn't that something? You know you can do that. Don't don't think you can't do that. It's called training. And use your eyes today, and you will eventually see that you can actually catch uh, four three hundred millisecond uh, intervals of the of the visual field rising and falling, the world appearing and the world disappearing. And you'll get it. Once you know where to look, how to look, you'll get it. You have to slow down. Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. One moment, therefore, lasts about 13 milliseconds. Not bad, eh? The, this duration of, uh, of spread between one moment and other words depends on the sensory modality in which the event is presented to us. For example, human beings can distinguish auditory events most finely. To experience two sounds as distinct, they have to be at least 10 milliseconds apart. Same thing. So it feels continuous. The bell bell ringing feels like a continuous ring. If the interval is too short. If the interval is long enough, it's distinct sounds. Do you see? 10 milliseconds. Objective time 
can of course be divided into moments of much smaller duration. Currently, this is not correct, but currently the shortest duration measured is on the attosecond level. That is 10 to the minus 18th of a second. Does that mean anything to you? No. The vibration, the, the duration it takes for a atom to vibrate near another atom and to transfer information, electron, electronic information, is 100 attoseconds. They've just built a laser, an X-ray laser that can actually pulse that fast, which means they'll be able to now investigate chemical reactions at that speed between different atoms because the pulse of the X-ray is down now at that speed, intervals. Do you, do you understand what that means? That means that the actual pulse of the, of the laser only lasts 10 to the minus 18th of a second in duration, and they can measure that. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Now, the speed it takes for light to travel across an atom Is that the Planck constant? No, it's less. I think it's 10 to the minus 25 of a second. They can measure, they can they just do the math, math. It's easy. You just know the distance across an, an, an actual atom, and you can measure the speed of light, and you can find out how long it takes for light to travel across an atom. Isn't that amazing how, how fast that is? So durations are actually important. Do they really exist? Well, let's take a laser. The laser gets turned on, and then gets turned off. Correct? That's an interval. So I want you to experiment today without thinking too much, because I don't want you to get too thinking. Do intervals exist, or do they not exist? Do you have any intervals between your thoughts? They're just called gaps. You know, in meditation, they call them gaps. Are there any gaps between thoughts, or is it continuous monologue? So where do we start? We want to start with the body. First of all, are there gaps in perception? Gaps in sensory experience. And then if you can do that, you might get into gaps uh, to do a thought, thought process. Do thoughts ever drop out and then rise back up again? Or is it all one continuous seam of thinking? That's right. And what, what never drops out? There's a question for you. You want a Mahamudra Zogchen? What is it that never drops away and never fades? And never rises and never ceases? See, that's where Mahamudra and Zogchen start. That kind of question. Go and find out and bring back to me what never rises, what never gets created, what never fades, what doesn't have any gaps. Oh, sorry. 10 to the minus 20 is the diameter of a proton. It takes 10 to the 26 Planck units of light moving across a proton to make up one attosecond. These are really small intervals. Okay. 
interestingly enough, what we experience as the present moment, are you getting any doubts about the present moment now? I hope you do. This is where most of this, this, a lot of this is leading. How long does the present moment of experience last for you? Right now, do you feel, this is another meditation for you to do. Actually, this is a fantastic meditation. You want to cut through a lot of stuff? See if you can catch what is a present moment of experience. I do these things, you know, from time to time. Find out what is meant by a present moment. You will be amazed. Look for the present moment. See if you can catch it. And bring it back to me in a cage. <laughs> really, do it. Do it again and again. Just keep going, looking, and or experiencing the present moment and see if you can actually find what is the present moment. And then do the other things I've told you to do and see if, it, if any of this adds up at all. See if it adds up one bit. Interestingly enough, what we experience as the present moment is considerably longer than the smallest unit of subjective time. Various psychological experiments succeeded in demonstrating that the duration of the present moment is about two to three seconds. That's the present moment. For most people, life in terms of moments is two or three seconds long. Cool, isn't it? See how see what yours is like. See what the see what the feeling is like. For example, if we listen to a continuous clack, clack, clack of a metronome, it's possible to give a subjective accent to every second beat. Clack, 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 as long as the clacks are no more than three seconds apart. Interesting. But do we normally go like this for life? No. For most people, it's little chunks. How big does the chunk feel? to have a present moment. Is this too fast for you? Is that too fast for a present moment? Or this? Is this okay? One second. How about this? Too long? Find out for yourself what do you experience as a present moment and is it, is it real? Does it based on anything? Or is it totally make-believe? The creation of the present moment is a sophisticated fabrication employed by the brain to deal with the fact that different pieces of information belonging together arrive at the brain at different times. So when you touch so-called you, so-called touched Andrea's so-called foot, that's a much longer duration than visual reception and smell. So how is it that we actually put all this disparate information together so it feels like it's in the present moment? We don't. It's a total fiction. It doesn't happen. It's all to do with projection. And all to do with supposition about how the world is creates these present moments. It's not happening like that. We, we live about, on average, one-eighth, one-quarter to one-half a second behind everything that's happening. We're never in the present moment. Can you hear the intervals? Do you focus on continuity of wind or the intervals? Which one do you focus on? Is it continuous or discrete? 
And what happens when it becomes discrete? If you listen very finely for the wind howling, what happens to consciousness? Our brains deal with this temporal chaos, this time chaos. Cool, isn't it? Time chaos. Wind, visual information, sensory information, hearing things. How many things are you processing right now? Longmark's voice, the wind howling, waves out there, Barry um, um, blowing his nose, someone filling with a rosary, looking out here, all this stuff. All moving at different times, put into what? The present experience. It's not the case. It is a temporal chaos by creating an illusory presence such that all information arriving within this time window of two or three seconds is regarded as simultaneous right now experience. Isn't that neat? Isn't that cool? I'd love to see your just your mind's blown. You know, just poof. Even the present moment, which seems to be the most real time there is, and the most direct contact we can make with the world, turns out to be, as the yogis, he says authors, as the yogis, these were great yogis, of the Abhidhamma, Sariputra, author? No. Extraordinary master of insight. He was, the, the Buddha said, you know, great, great master, great master of insight of, of, of this would put it a superimposition of the rapid flow of moments flashing in and out of existence. How about the table? Can you experience the, the moments of the, of the atoms in the table flashing in and out of existence? It, feels, it looks solid to you, doesn't it? No. According to Abhidhamma, all the atoms in that table are flashing in and out of existence. They have very short duration. Like that. It only appears to be solid. Cool, isn't it? So if you could get your mind at the same frequency as an object, you could put your body through it. You could do you could do that indeed, but you have to make sure your hydrogen atom bonds are in sync because otherwise it'll be a mess. You may not make it through the object entirely. <laughs> Could be the problem with teleportation if they get it wrong, you know, you're halfway through a wall. <laughs> but yes, this is the idea, Barry, in, in being able to um, do these various things, is you got to get the vibration right. Consciousness must match the form. If we accept the Abhidhamma count, which sees all phenomena as similar to the illusory circle of fire, we end up with a two-level view of the world. On one hand, there are the illusory medium-sized objects, tables and chairs, and fire wheels and so forth, while on the other hand, there is the rock-bottom layer of reality that is composed of the momentary and short-lived particles. It just appears as a blur, so it looks solid. We know this in physics. The rock over there, or the carpet over here, is a blur, but it's actually moving very, very fast. It's vibrating, and its existence is momentary. Its, its temporal existence is so fast that they can only now begin to measure the, the, the play of an atom uh, moving in space. 
The particles are real while everything else is an illusory conceptual superimposition. That's not even right either. However, that gets completely blown apart because if there is discrete moments, then what's in between the discrete moments? So that gets all thrown out. I just, just, I just throw all that out. Well, if you have a discrete moment, yes, like this, then it must be producing the next discrete moment. Well, what's in between? This is a problem. And so the, the yogis later on, about two or three hundred years, like Nargarjuna said, uh-uh, no discrete anythings. That's all illusion. There cannot be. Causation is not real. Karma is not real. What's in between all this stuff? Mind. Therefore, if mind is in between all the gaps, then it must be a continuous basis of mind, and therefore it's all mind created. Finish of the argument. For when we postulate that a present moment causes a future moment, the future moment is only something supplied by our minds or expectations. Why? Because it's all conceptual. We know that every single moment of experience is conceptual. So what's the rock bottom layer? Not the atoms. Not the appearance. What is it? Mind bringing forth experience. So mind is the... The rock. The that does neither rises nor falls. That's correct. But if the notion... Oh, we'll just carry on here. And since whatever is conceptual... Whatever is a conceptual construct is mind-dependent... To some extent, moments cannot be the rock bottom of reality. They, like everything else, are an artifice, are a, constru- a construct of the mind. Depending on whether we accept this argument, we therefore have two different ways of interpreting the statement that all phenomena are like an illusory wheel of fire. We can either see them as a fictitious superimposition on a real basis or as an illusory phenomena founded on something that in turn is just as illusory. So no matter which way you turn, this way or that way, it's illusory. You must relax your mind into stop holding on to fictions and let it go. Any questions? Did you get a feel for that? This is the illusoriness of duration which creates events and objects that have really just a figment of the mind. Okay, how are you going to do this? You can either do it sloppily or you can go at it systematically. Systematic way, you just start looking for intervals. You get finer and finer and finer and finer and finer and finer and finer until the fixity breaks apart. What is the way, the direct way to non-clinging? to the direct way for transcendental experience. No more fixation. When fixation and clinging breaks apart, the uh, nirvana or the experience of freedom instantly arises. So one way is to go see things how they are and break out of the fixity of continuity as being real. Now, you may get to the bedrock of continuity which is mind. Mind's underneath it all. But to do that, to, to make that jump, 
I don't know too many people that can make that jump very well. They get sloppy. It's all imagined. They imagine their mind. They imagine a continuation. Very, very messy. Okay. Continuous or discontinuous? Is the sound continuous or discontinuous? Discontinuous. But what does the visual feel like, look like? Continuous. You see how to do it? Thoughts continuous or discontinuous? Feelings continuous or discontinuous? Emotions continuous or discontinuous? The being that wants to have, a, have the same emotion, it's continuous. The being that applies actual insight and clarity to it, it's a completely discontinuous, broken up event that rises and falls. <clears throat> Let's try it again. This is actually worth doing again. You can see how you can do insight, real vipassana, at the sensory, at the feeling level, at the emotional level, and at the mind state level. Try it again. Continuous or discontinuous? It's exactly what you need to do. Again and again and again until the fiction gets broken. Yes? Water is particularly difficult, right? <laughs> I mean, you, the stepping is... Yes, so that's the, that's the door in. Door in. And then you can do with everything you do in the day. End the reaching. When do you, when do you end the reaching? When you touch. When do you begin the next? When there is lifting. Correct? Moving. Touching. Sipping. Tasting. What was before tasting? Aroma. Expectation. Swallowing. Mm-hmm. Swallowing. Sensation. Sensation. Passing away of sensation. Do you follow? Sensation in the tummy. Sensation in the throat, sensation, 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 beats of sensation, and then no more detectable sensation. Reaching, lowering, touching. What does the mind do? In all these things, it makes up a a continuity. But can it drop the last one and move to the next? This is very important. This breaks the monologue. It breaks up the monologue. Why? Because if you start to get very exact about it, you'll see that the intention to reach out, once you've touched, is finished. There must be another intention to hold. There must be another mental intention to lift up. There must be another mental intention to sip. Where did all the previous mental intentions go? Let me give another example. Uh, Maybe speed up your practice. Hi, Shalan. How are you doing? Having a good day? Oh, distracted by talking to Alan, not uh, by Shalan, not actually concentrating. Now there's concentration. 
was sipping? Where did the feeling of distraction go to? It's gone. Did you see? That's an interval. It's finished. The dialogue is finished. But if you want to carry it on, go right ahead. Do you see? You can go right ahead and be worried. Oh, well, I had a dialogue. I'm distracted. But are you anymore? No. It's finished. So this is why it's more important to focus on the finish than even the beginning. First of all, we start with beginnings and ends. Very important to train yourself this way. I'm giving you a lot very quickly, but, but it's important. Beginnings and endings. Beginnings and endings. You must spot them with utter precision. You turn the screw, the screw's finished. You turn it again, you turn it again, you turn it again. What do most people say? I'm screwing the screw into the wall. But what is there? Do you see? What happens after each turn? What happens after each turn? It's finished. It's finished. Watch. Is it finished? The one turn is finished, yes? Is it continuous or discontinuous? It's discontinuous. What do we do by common language and projection? I've been screwing it into the wall. Did you see? Now, when it comes to emotions and feelings and mental events, the continuity does the same thing. It produces a fabrication. If you go like this, state of mind, because you're so observant, right? What state of mind is there in the turning of the screw? Is it all the same state of mind? If you're perceptive enough, you'll see state of mind, state of mind, state of mind, state of mind. What happens? You drop one, you let the next one arise. What do we normally do? We hold on to things imaginary for days or hours or years when they don't have any basis in any existence. So this is a beautiful method for busting up the illusion. We start with the body. Go watch people walking across the deck or around uh, the villas. Watch things out in the water, birds. I don't care what you do. It doesn't even matter. Just, just do it. And that's called a foundation of body, kāyanipāsana. Insight into kāyanipāsana, transience of kāyanipāsana. Now take your energy feelings and your, your, your feel, feel of the mind, feel of the body-mind, right? See it drop away, come and go, come and go. Then states of mind. And eventually the clinging will come off. When the clinging comes off, we have the experience of non-clinging awareness. all blows away. And the nature, what's the word for nirvana? Be blown away. Blown away. Let go. So, I think that's plenty. (laughs) What a great way to end. Bada bang. Okay, we'll see you uh, not tomorrow. I think uh, we're going to take a pause. Tomorrow is, I believe, Monday. Take a one-day pause tomorrow. Uh, no, not tonight. I want you to practice. So you're now going to have an evening. It's scary for some of you. I know, scary for some of you. Happy for others. But uh, not tonight. No class tonight. 
and no class tomorrow. Reconvene on Tuesday morning. Okay? Reconvene on Tuesday morning. I want you to start to get some more time. You've got lots. You don't have to do everything. Follow your interest just to follow one good one. You can do that for hour after hour. Refresh yourself. Do some yoga, tai chi, Feldenkrais. Keep refreshing so your energies are balanced. You stay bright and focused and come back. Come back. Come back. Stay out of the theoretical. Stay into the, the question as your key. Question as your movement of the contemplation. Let it go and just observe. Your, your consciousness, trust your consciousness, it's completely intelligent. It knows exactly what to do. It, it knows exactly what it's doing. Just let it have the space to play with real exactitude. Okay. So see you back on Tuesday morning. Is there any reason why I shouldn't? No. No? Okay, thanks. <laughs> Although lunch and coffee today. Yes, lunch and coffee. Who would like to come for lunch today? I think uh, Nuno had your hand up yesterday. So uh, Nuno today for lunch. And then right after lunch, it's around 1 hmm? o'clock. One. One uh, who Anybody has not come for coffee would like to come for coffee? Okay, how about five? Five people? Yeah. Five? Oh. That'll include Nuno as well, right? That's right. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So who's going to be compassionate and eliminate themselves? Okay, there's one compassion elimination. Could I see another compassion elimination? <laughs> okay. So one, two, three, four, Five. Okay? Very good. Whatever. Maybe six. Okay. Six, is six is fine, too. Yeah. Everybody has one today. Manana. <laughs> okay. By this powerful activity, may it lead to the cessation of suffering for all beings. Idante, punikamang, asawaki wang motu, idante, punikamang, asawaki wang motu, idante, punikamang, asawaki wang motu. May all beings be healthy and happy. May all beings be established in the continuum of freedom and the perfect union of wisdom and compassion. Many blessings, many blessings, many blessings. Saramangalam, Saramangalam, Saramangalam.